Okay. Hey, so one of the one of my favorite things to do is weddings, and so we had a great wedding last night uh, with Jennifer and Aaron that you may or may not know, but uh, you do want to know. Um, fantastic. Uh, he actually this was this was the meal. He made the brisket, smoked the brisket. The groom did for 15 hours. I'm still full. It's phenomenal, but great time. Uh, always celebrations. I love the different life of the church, and weddings are just the best. Party, dancing, celebrating, friendship, fun, connecting with one another. What weddings should be. So anyhow, I thought I would just let you in on some of our fun. All right, so if you're joining us for the first time, um, we're doing two books of the Bible at the same time. First uh, Peter... For clarity in doctrine, Jonah for the drama of doctrine. So you're sitting there and you're wondering, well, what doctrine are you talking about? And we're we're talking about the most popular doctrine of all. We're talking about the doctrine that everybody knows about. It's called the doctrine of the strange God. (laughs) So how how do you approach a doctrine like that? How do you approach the strange God? Uh, Here's how we're approaching it. Here's how I want to encourage you to continue to approach it. Whether you're in Peter, whether you're in Jonah, be curious. Be curious. Um, Practice what we learned over the summer. Those of you that were here, a word, a Hebrew word called sila, which means shut up and listen. Practice that. Be curious. Ask God things like, who are you? And then the next thing we're going to do, we're going to, Be curious, but then we're also going to be astonished because curiosity will shift. There'll be a shift somewhere, sometime, maybe one time, maybe suddenly, maybe several times. There'll be a shift from curiosity to clarity. And you'll say things like, I see you now. You're wonderful. Would you send me to Nineveh? That's how you're going to know if you start getting God. It's just a weird thing. When you start getting God, you'll want to go to Nineveh. And that might be (laughs) your own home. All right, so where are we today? Well, we're back in 1 Peter. So in the BT days, I talked about those BT days right? The before Thai days. We had four kids, then we had Thai 10 years, nine years later. I always get that mixed up. Uh, We had a family discussion, like a family powwow, over the dentist because it was that time of the year. You know, that time of the year when cavity competition comes into play very heavily in our family. If you have cavities, you lose. If you don't have cavities, you win. And so, of course, there's lots of trash talking, and there was lots of trash talking at that time. There was, you're going to have 20 cavities, you know. You can't brush your teeth now. You think that's going to help? I brush my teeth for three hours every day. You think you hear things like, (laughs) uh, have you seen the size of her drill? You know, the kids will say to each other. One will say, she's going to take all your teeth. We'll never see you again. All fun stuff, really, really good stuff, right? Uh, Then the topic, they'll move to braces. Like, 
Who's going to have braces? Who might get braces? And so some of, some of them would say, you know, well, mom had braces. Uncle Pete had braces. And then one would say, well, what are braces? And then my oldest, you know, the firstborn, the one you're supposed to, in, you know, in ancient culture, pin all your hopes on, says, I don't want braces. I want crooked teeth like daddy. I know everybody's looking, so you might as well just get a good look. For 30-something years, I thought I had straight teeth. <laughs> oh, my word. So here's my first thought. My first thought is this for you folks. Uh, do you struggle with pride? Does anybody struggle with pride, like, you know, intellectually, mentally, you know, physically, uh, in some way? My first response is, the reason you struggle with pride is because you don't have any kids. So get some kids, right? Get some kids. Preferably find a wife first. That usually works better for you, okay? All right. So this text is saying to all of us, this is what this text is saying. You thought you knew. You thought you knew holiness. You thought you knew what holiness is, you thought. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at verse 13 through 21. Uh, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers all the way back to the original one called Adam, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that Lamb of God without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that, the result that, your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you even now, like, work and move and act, even on the things that we just talked about, we just committed to you, Lord, would you act that this would be your way of acting suddenly, that you would show up, that you would speak us back to life again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this passage is about what? Holiness. So the question is, what is holiness? What is it? I want you to look at 1 Peter 13. Here we go, Scotty. Can we get verse 13 up there? Look how it begins. You see that therefore? What that therefore is doing, it's gathering everything that just came before it in verses 1 through 12. So all the divine power that was marshaled in verses 1 through 12 are being gathered to a therefore. So 
The strange church in verses 1 through 2 is being gathered. The suffering church in verses 3 through 9 is being gathered. The good Bible teaching church in verses 10 through 12 is being gathered. And now it's all being gathered, therefore, for this reason. Here's why you should care. Here's why you should care about verses 1 through 12, about all this divine power. We're going to geek out a little bit in the text. I love, like Paul, Paul says things like, I need you to think hard about what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you understanding. So we are going to think hard, all right? Some, my wife might think we're going to think a little too hard. She'll tell me, so you don't need to, okay? Just to be clear. So here's what we're going to do. Therefore, so there's the therefore, gathering verses 1 through 12. It says preparing your minds for action. You see that? You got preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded. Those are called participles, which means they're a supporting idea. So if it's a supporting idea, is it a main idea? No. The main idea is that set your hope. That's the only main verb in there. So set your hope is the dominating idea. This is why you should care. In other words, Peter is saying. The preparing and being sober-minded are telling you something about setting your hope. Everybody with me? Okay. Now... Bible experts are conflicted over this passage. I just need to be honest with you, and that's why we got to put our thinking caps on just for a little bit. There's some controversy here. There's controversy over when you get the grace and when Jesus Christ shows up. They're split. Some Bible experts say future. So it would read like this. Set your hope on the grace coming to you when Jesus comes at the end of all things. And that's kind of how this is translated in the ESV. The problem is the key verb there is present tense, not future. I think Paul knows the difference. I mean, Paul is like, well, Peter said he's not very clear, but I think he's incredibly clear. Peter just didn't know Greek. The main idea also of this whole section is a present holiness, not a future one, okay? So camp one says future. Camp two says it's present and future. In other words, it's continuous. The grace comes to you now. The grace comes to you at dinner. The grace comes to you while you're sleeping. The grace comes to you tomorrow. The grace comes to you when you struggle. The grace comes next week. The grace comes with whatever's coming your way. And the grace comes on that great day because Jesus shows up. Okay? So... What is holiness according to Peter? Here's the big idea. What is holiness? We're answering that question. What's holiness according to Peter? Answer, holiness is hoping in Jesus. You thought you knew what holiness is. If we went out to 99.9% .9 of the churches and Christians and interviewed them today and said, what is holiness? Dare I say, maybe 1% would say hoping in Jesus. Most of us would say something like sinning less, obeying more. Most of us would say something like um, some form of me being different and doing different things. Some of us would say things like avoid sin. Some of us would say, like, be a good person. 
Some of us would think things like, you have your quiet time every day. Some of us would say things like, I feel God when I sing. Some, and it would just go on and on and on. So holiness is hoping in Jesus. But do you see what's happening? It's hoping in a Jesus that reveals himself to you in the present and the future. Now, this afternoon, and tomorrow. Hoping in a Jesus that reveals himself to you, shows up to you, breaks into you, comes to you, bringing grace. That's holiness. I want you to look at some aspects, just so we're clear, of holiness. So in verses 14 through 17, Peter is going to say the same thing three times differently. But it's the same thing. You ready? First, he says it in the negative. He says, don't be enslaved by your desires. Do you see that? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, your former self. Passions is, is mega desires. And so it could be things like your desire for love and acceptance. Don't be enslaved to that. Your need for comfort. Don't be enslaved to that. Your desire for fun. Don't be enslaved to that. It's not kind of the things we think about, is it? Certainly, it might be things like don't be enslaved to substances, sure. Don't be enslaved to sex, sure. Uh, don't be enslaved to your desire for human approval. Then he says another aspect of holiness, right? He says it in the positive. Instead, be holy, right? See that? Be holy in all your being, Conduct is, is a sad word because it's not the accurate word. It's actually in all your life. So be holy in your being. Be holy in your doing. Be holy. It's in the very fiber and DNA of who you are that you're actually human. Because holiness means humanness. Holiness means you fulfill your design, your meaning in life, which is to be an image bearer which means that you finally and fully are yourself. You be holy as being yourself and being who you are, human. And then there's some aspects of that that are told and expressed in Scripture, but we're not getting into all those right now. This is way beyond being nice. This is way beyond the Enneagram. This is way beyond your personality. This is your person and your works. Be holy. Third, he says it unmistakably in case we missed it. Being holy is out of your reach. Did you see that? You can't make it happen. And, verse 17, and is continuing the thought. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile. Fear is shorthand for the fear of the Lord. So what he's saying is that you are, fear of the Lord is not just this intellectual concept. It's not just this emotional concept. It's not just this being concept. It's not just this doing concept. It is like all your energy as a human being you do in the fear of the Lord. So you play football in the fear of the Lord. You parent in the fear of the Lord. You do work in the fear of the Lord. You suffer in the fear of the Lord. You stress out in the fear of the Lord. You resolve relational wreckage in the fear of the Lord. 
You thought you knew what holiness is. So how in the world can you be holy like this? This is beyond a quiet time. This is beyond personality. This is beyond being nice. This is beyond helping an elderly person across the street. This is beyond doing good. Answer, by hoping in Jesus. What is holiness? Hoping in Jesus. You thought you knew what holiness is. So how do we do this practically? Because that's really a big thing, right? Usually I'll get questions like, great, great, hope in Jesus, Jeff, great. Uh, How do you do that practically? How do we hope in Jesus practically? How do you practically be holy? Does the Bible talk about this, or does it always seem to go to some way of connecting with Jesus? Well, the first answer is, yes, it always has to do with connecting with Jesus, and it always is deeper and fuller and bigger and brighter and better than we ever thought. But let's talk about some practicalities. The answer is in the grammar in verse 13. This is incredible. Let's go back to verse 13. Let's look at that first participle. That first participle is telling you how you practically hope in Jesus. It tells you how practically you begin to become holy. You ready? Here it is. The first participle, what's it saying? Preparing your minds for action. This is an ancient person would go, oh, wow, that's really cool. Because an ancient person knows that if they're going to do something, if they're going to move, if they're going to work, if they're going to run, if they're going to go into battle, if they're going to like do what their wife tells them to do around the house, they're going to need to move. And so they wear long robes. And so they're going to need to take their robe and prepare it to move, to tuck it into their belt, or for a woman to pull it up and wrap it and tie it. But everyone in the ancient world, when they are going to move, do something, be a human being, they have to prepare their robe for action. Peter is saying your mind can get in the way like your robe. Tuck it in. Prepare it. For action. How? By setting your mind on Jesus and his salvation. That's telling us what hoping in Jesus looks like. So when you feel disconnected and distant from God, the answer, according to Peter, is set your mind, set your thinking on Jesus and his salvation. Can I ask you something real quick before I give you a whole list of these? Do you think you can have a thought without a feeling? Try it. Do you think you can have a feeling without a thought? Try it. When you think, you feel. When you feel, you think. They are interchangeable. They are the same thing. They are one coin just looking at that one coin called the heart from two different angles. When your heart is thinking, it's called the mind. When your heart is feeling, it's called the affections or your desires. So before you get a little too much, which in our tradition, oh, yeah, this is all about the head and studying and like I'm setting my mind and I become an egghead and we got too many of those. 
But thinking leads to feeling. The feeling leads to thinking. They're interchangeable. So when you practically start thinking, setting your mind on Jesus and his salvation, when you're feeling distant and disconnected with God, what happens is Jesus shows up and brings you grace. Because in other parts of the Bible, we're told that faith comes by hearing. Hearing. It's the most foolish thing possible. How do you bring down a kingdom? You hear. How do you change a marriage? You hear. How does my life change? Here. How do my kids change? Here. The ear. The ear changes the world. The ear brings down kingdoms. The ear transforms culture. The ear reaches you. Set your thinking. So when you struggle with sin, set your thinking, set your mind on Jesus and his salvation. When you're suffering, set your thinking, set your mind on Jesus and his salvation. When you're in relational conflict, you get the point. When high school and, or when school or sports or music or your endeavors and your achievements, the, the passions, the gifts, the talents, the abilities, friendships, church, home, when they disappoint you and discourage you, set your mind, set your thinking on Jesus and his salvation. When you're in inner turmoil and you're completely confused and you're feeling out of control, set your mind, set your thinking on Jesus and his salvation. When you live in a chaos, chaotic culture that's out of control, its desires are taking over, set your mind, set your thinking on Jesus and his salvation. And what happens? Jesus shows up with grace. You thought you knew what holiness is. So what happens, though, when we don't hope in Jesus? So let's go practically again. You want practicality, right? So what happens when you don't practically learn to hope in Jesus in real life? Let's say you don't practically learn to hope in Jesus in your marriage. You don't practically learn to hope in Jesus in your parenting. You don't practically learn to hope in Jesus in how you handle money and how you deal with people and how you communicate, and how you handle an out-of-control culture, and how you do work. Let's say you don't practically learn how to hope in Jesus, to set your mind, your thinking on Jesus and his salvation. What happens? The answer is also in the grammar. God is in the grammar. Let's go to verse 13. It's in that second participle. Remember, these are subpoints. These are only subpoints. They're participles telling us all about hoping in Jesus, right? Being sober-minded. What that being sober-minded is describing, when you, when you prepare your minds for action, when you set your thinking on Jesus and his salvation. Now, Paul says that, in other words, when you put on the helmet of salvation, remember those other places in the Bible, picking up on the same thing, the result is, is you become sober-minded. So we could say it this way. When we don't hope in Jesus, when we don't learn to build our messy lives and our relationships around learning to hope in Jesus. If that's not happening practically, I mean, just practically, that second participle doesn't happen for us. In other words, being sober-minded does not happen. What does happen, that means our thinking and our feeling becomes intoxicated. 
our inner life becomes drunk, out of control. You remember where it says don't conform to those passions? The word for passion in the Greek is mega desires. Over desires. Epi, epic desires. When we don't learn to set our mind, our thinking on Jesus and his salvation, what ends up happening is our inner life becomes epic. Epi. Over. Obsessive. Addictive our thinking and our feelings. So what happens? Well, this is what happens. When you struggle with sin, you become intoxicated with feelings of self-hatred. When you suffer, you become intoxicated, flooded with feelings of despair. When you're in a relational conflict, you're filled, you're intoxicated with being mean. When school and sports and work and family and church are disappointing and discouraging, when you're confused and out of control, feeling out of control, what you end up doing is, is you do stupid stuff. You get filled, intoxicated with doing stupid stuff, harmful stuff, unloving stuff. It's pretty much our culture. What is holiness? Hoping, hoping. Hoping in Jesus. You thought you knew what holiness is. So I come from a tradition that's all about holiness. I came out of a tradition that was all about holiness. We ate holiness. We drank holiness. We slept holiness. We worked holiness. We talked holiness. We taught holiness. I dare you to try to compare a holiness record with me. Absolutely dare you. Holiness was personal, it was relational, it was vocational, it was cultural, it was total. Holiness was visible, it was measurable, it was practical, it was progressive, it was for the hardcore. Holiness was everything. Sin less, obey more. And I did this for 10 years and was exhausted and was not more holy. I was worse. So I'm at seminary looking for something. I don't know what I was looking for, but looking for something, some other trick. I've tried everything. I did everything. I did every tradition, every theological doctrine out there on life change, sanctification, holiness, being better, becoming the next whatever, Spurgeon, Jim Elliott, whatever you think. Uh, and I'm in this seminary class, and there's this weird professor, and he is weird. And he kept talking about the gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Yeah, gospel. It was completely annoying, absolutely annoying. But from the Bible, but from theology, but from church history but from a whole new grammar of the gospel that I never heard before, he started giving us the class, Jesus. And we started hoping in Jesus. 
something strange started happening down in the roots of my exhausted being. It started getting touched and it started getting reached and it started getting renewed and I started coming alive. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. This So you say, many have come up to me over the past 20-something years just begging me to tell them something to do. I will never tell you something to do. It's called the law, and you'll never be able to do it anyway. But if I give you Jesus, who did it, you'll make some inkling, some measure of the fruit of the Spirit in your life in this life. And we can thank God for that. So Barbara Duguid in her book, Extravagant Grace, writes, if sanctification is all about us sinning less and less, then we would have to conclude that the Holy Spirit isn't doing his job very well. Here's how we're going to end. We're going to look at verse 18. You ready? so incredible how he structures. I, I'm really kind of impressed the way Peter structured this text, honestly. It's, it's very Pauline. Knowing, now he's, he's actually going to do to you, to the reader, what he just said. So first he tells you the doctrine. Why should you care about this, right? And then he just slips this in just to prove it to you. Knowing. Do you see that? Knowing. Knowing. See how that begins? That's the set your mind piece. Do you see it? So he's, he's going to now make you hope in Jesus. He's going to set all this stuff, and now he's going to say, you thought you knew what holiness is, and here's how it's going to happen. Knowing that. So here we go. Practically hoping in Jesus. Set your mind knowing. He's saying knowing, right? That you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. He just gives you a ransom is a specific grammar of the gospel. Now, the gospel is like infinitely rich. It's like a diamond with incredible cuts multiplicity of cuts in this one unique, inexhaustible, infinite, beautiful diamond. But each cut reaches and renews you. Each cut unloads grace on you. Each cut is spellbinding and breathtaking and awe-inspiring and faith-giving and sanctifying. Here's one cut, ransom. <laughs> this is incredible. So he's basically saying, when you say ransom, ransom is the picture of a slave under dark powers being bought back. You were ransomed. You were bought back from the dark power of sin, the dark power of death, the dark power of what we looked at a week ago primal evil. He went into the slave market and buys you back. And so the question is, with what? What has the power to buy you back? What can break chains of the darkest power around which is sin, death, and primal evil. What has that kind of power? Not with perishable things. 
as silver or gold, here it is, but with the precious blood of Christ. God's blood. God's blood. God goes into the dark power and takes your place, becomes enslaved to sin, spills his blood, you're set free. God becomes enslaved to death. God becomes enslaved to primal evil, takes your place, pays the price, sets you free. Ransom. It's only one grammar of the gospel. A lot of personal holiness today is trying to pay the ransom. A lot of energy in life and in relationships today is trying to pay the ransom. A lot of marriages, a lot of parenting, a lot of ministry, a lot of cultural engagement is trying to pay the ransom. The ransom has been paid by God's blood. How does that make you feel? A little awe, maybe? Wonder? Like you can trust him? Like, can this be true? Or, I see you. Maybe for the first time. That feeling, that total, all-encompassing reality is called the fear of the Lord. What is holiness? It's hoping in Jesus. You thought you knew what holiness is. Let me pray for us.